You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gardner, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today we are talking deeply about non-clinical pharmaceutical statistics with Sam. So stay tuned for this part one of two parts and you'll learn about part two next week. As you already learned from Sam in the introduction episode, he is really, really an expert in non-clinical pharmaceutical statistics. And even if you're not working in this area, it actually makes sense to look a little bit beyond that and see what's going on there. I once had a very, very interesting tour by one of my non-clinical statisticians in the pharmaceutical manufacturing space and it was really, really interesting to see actually how these pills, injectables and so on are manufactured because you get a completely different sense for what is finally reaching the patient. And there's lots of interesting statistics and technical things as well. So stay tuned for this really insightful episode. Insightful is a good word because there's also lots of insightful resources that we put on the homepage. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com and you'll have then now a couple of different landing pages where it's where you can find lots of additional resources to become a more effective statistician. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars and much, much more. And there is the PSI conference coming up. Check that out. That is an amazing conference and it's virtual this year. And if you register for that, you actually become a member directly as well. So check out psiweb.org and learn more about PSI activities, the conference, and become a PSI member today. another episode and today it's again Sam and myself. Hi Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing great today. How are you doing Alexander? Very good. Today we are diving a little bit more into non-clinical statistics. We talked about this already in the episode where we talked a little bit more about your career and where you uh, was coming from. Uh, where you were coming from and today we are talking really about more kind of the non-clinical statistics stuff so so let's less about the career things so in terms of non-clinical pharmaceutical statistics what is this about so so which areas are touched there because you know non-clinical is kind of an interesting definition because everything outside of clinical clinical right exactly what areas are these actually (laughs) yes so 
Well, I, I think I'd start out by saying when a lot of people think about statistics in the pharmaceutical industry, they think about clinical trials because that's what's on the news, right? Mm-hmm. You think about what, even what's going on most recently with the, the trials for the COVID vaccine and the yep. metrics that are being reported and the efficacy results. Statistics is in the forefront there. And, and statisticians are involved with that kind of work, which is very important. But non-clinical statistics simply stated is just the application of statistics in pharmaceutical R&D and manufacturing that's not directly related to planning and analyzing clinical trials. Yeah, so I think that is uh, important. It's in R&D and manufacturing. So we are not talking about kind of business analytics on marketing data and things like that. Also, I guess some of these things we talk about today can be applied there actually, which is quite fun. Yes, I'd say so. You know, I, and I've actually worked in those areas. I've worked in the non-clinical area. I've worked in the business analytics side of pharma, and they are very different. And so, typically, people that are working on the sales and marketing, finance, human relate, human resources problems, and using analytics in those areas in pharma, don't get classified in that non-clinical statistics group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's usually different topic, different conferences. Uh, different background very often. So, mm-hmm. um, yep, but I think the, this podcast will help bring lots of these different topics together. So let's dive into this. Um, what kind of, you know, external customers are, are, are you working for, for from a company's perspective? Or is that, is that only, you know, to optimize manufacturing or or things like this? Is there any kind of regulation involved there? Right, so let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about when you're developing a new drug product, right? The ultimate customer would be the customer that's gonna take that medicine in the future. But the intermediate customer you have are the regulatory agencies that you have to communicate with and do an application to get that drug approved. And part of that, process is to submit an extensive amount of information about how the drug product was designed, um, the stability of the drug product, uh, the critical quality attributes and critical process parameters that need to be controlled during the manufacturing process when you make the drug product. And all of that involves statistical methods. And so there's statistical issues there. In addition, setting specifications for the quality of the product as well. And all of the analytical testing, the analytical methods themselves have to be validated and tested to make sure that they are appropriate for testing the quality of the material. So statistical so, issues everywhere. And so the, the, the long-term customer in development is getting a, or long-term goal, I should say, is getting a regulatory approval. So the customers, that regulator that you're trying to communicate to uh, that we made this, we developed this drug product the right way. Yeah. And when you talk about analytical, that's actually in that space a little bit of a tricky word because it doesn't necessarily mean that you're talking about statistics there. Analytical no. could be just kind of analyzing the biologic or biological or chemical entities in, in the products, right. isn't it? So so when you're talking about the non-clinical area and you talk about analytical side of it, you're really talking about the analytical methods that are used to 
measure the quality or the properties of the materials that you're using. So an example might be a, a chemical reaction. If you took a chemistry class and you learned to do a titration, mm-hmm. you know, to, to tech and you see the color change in the, in the uh, solution as you add more acid or base. Well, that's an example of a type of analytical method you could use to, um, to test the quality, test the amount of ingredient that's in the drug, for instance, you can do a titration. Yep. And then there are more advanced methods. Titrations aren't used very much anymore, but there are methods that use chromatography and methods that use um, even enzymatic reactions like an ELISA assay is, is an example where um, you actually um, are measuring the, this, like if you want to measure the amount of a, a monoclonal antibody uh, that's in a material, then you, you do some, uh, use something called an ELISA assay. And, and so you really got to know the science uh, to be effective uh, in consulting in these areas. And I've been fortunate to learn a lot about the science of that thing. Even these COVID tests that are being touted, you know, and people are going and getting COVID tests, those are um, uh, PCR tests, right? And what they do is they look for the parts of the protein that's mm-hmm. in the, the COVID. And, and it's interesting, the science behind that, where you know, in, the, in your little saliva sample or the swab sample, there really isn't a lot of protein there to actually get a measurable signal. So the PCR tests actually amplify the amount of protein or the amount of signal that's in there by basically saying, okay, if there's this little piece of protein, let's grow on it and make it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So there's more and more and more and more of it, a, a bigger piece. And then you can measure that, that big piece, as opposed to measuring that little tiny piece of the protein that was just there as a fragment in your saliva or whatever. So yeah. Yeah, that's a good example of a yes or no answer, because if you amplify it a lot, then then you can't measure how much you had at the beginning. Yeah. So you think about what's the statistical issues. Say you want your goal is to develop a test like that. And that would it, it wouldn't that's an example of a clinical test, right? It's used for clinical purposes, but but you could also do tests to say, you know, if you're testing for the amount of a of, a, of an antibody, right? And you wanna measure that content in the drug product and and you have a pass fail criteria, right? For that, well, that, that kind of is the same idea. And so, but ultimately what happens is some number is generated, that number is compared to some criteria and then you get a pass or a fail result. Yeah. And so what's the, how is that number generated? Is it generated consistently? If you tested the same material over and over and over again, would you get the same results out of that test method? How much variation would be in those results? And then what's the impact of that variation on your ability to make a decision when you compare that number to some decision threshold, which usually what we call is a, we call that a specification limit is the decision threshold. Yeah. So you have, uh, you need to understand the, in, if it would be humans, it would be between rater variability. Yeah, for, uh, you need to understand kind of how it, if you have some kind of gold standard, yeah, how it relates to the gold standard. Yeah, how, right. how well does it uh, tell you something about it? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you don't have this gold standard, which is another problem in itself, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you, you learn pretty quickly if you work in this area that sometimes you do have those issues where there is no standard. Like for instance, when you're measuring the amount of a, uh, antibiotic, right? And antibiotics are these big molecules. They're not as big as proteins, but they're these pretty big molecules. And oftentimes you measure the effectiveness of an antibiotic by measuring how much it inhibits the growth of a bacteria, Mm -hmm. right? So what's the standard for that, right? It's, you know, there's no chemical standard for that. So usually what you do is you start out with a 
batch of material, uh, some material that you think is pretty good quality. And you do this test and you measure, um, like you let the bacteria grow and then you measure how much light passes through the solution, right? So how much light gets transmitted through the solution? That's your number. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then you use that to say, okay, well, we, we do that several times. We'll calculate the average amount. And then, um, this material from now on has a hundred percent. It is a, a hundred. That's its, that's its value. And that's the ruler. Now you've defined that to be the ruler and you measure everything else against that. Right. So you say, when you, when you run a test, you say, this one is uh, the standard material is pure. Or it's perfect. It's a hundred percent. So we'll, we'll run that through the method, see how much light transmits through. Then we'll take our new material that we don't know the, the quality of, and we'll, do run the test on that, see how much light transmits through the material, and we'll compare the amount of light that gets transmitted. And that relative difference, that ratio then is what you use to multiply, you know, against the, the standard potency or the standard concentration of that reference material. And there are a lot of statistical issues even in that. Like, how do you define the standard potency of a reference material? Yeah. Yeah. What happens when you, you know, what happens when you run out of that material? Because it's not going to last forever. And yeah. then you if have you to get introduce a new, a new test. Yeah, or you, or you, you have an, even a new test, or maybe it's the same test, but now you have to adopt a new reference material. So you have mm -hmm. to compare the new reference material with the old reference material, and you want to know that you do that in an accurate way. I actually had a pretty, pretty big project early on in my career in this non in the non clinical statistics area where we we wrote a guideline on how to do that within our company, because we were finding there were times where that reference standard comparison was not done with an appropriate experimental design mm -hmm. so that you end up having too much of a bias in the measurement of the new reference standard compared to the old reference standard. And then what happens? So the new reference standard changes, it goes down, say it, it, it's, it's got a 5% bias too low. Well, then the plant that's making that material, all of a sudden, all of their potencies go down 5%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Because now you're now your measuring stick instead of being this long is, you know, being a hundred is really you're saying it's a hundred, but it's really ninety-five, right? Or one oh five, right? Whichever way the and so you and I've had that happen where you know it ended up end up having a real operational business finance effect because that made the operating plant look like it was producing less material, right? All because you did a math mistake. With using a poor experimental design to measure the relative content of a new reference standard material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, a, that's an interesting aspect. So that is about the analytical piece. But mm -hmm. then there's also the manufacturing processes. What kind of things do you look in there? Well, and there's two sides to it. There's the active ongoing manufacturing right? That's, that's currently happening. Products that have been approved, they're being manufactured. And in that area, you are mainly doing quality control and quality monitoring. Mm -hmm. So you do a lot of statistical process control where you monitor a process and you understand its variation, its normal variation. And then you put limits around that. You say, well, if I understand the normal variation of the process and where it is on average, then I can put a range around the average. And if everything, all the results the process is producing is within that range, then things are probably running okay. And when things fall outside those normal ranges, then you have an issue that you may need to go address 
And, and so that's one aspect. And, and you think, well, that ought to be pretty easy, right? Doing a control chart, all you need is 20 data points. You calculate the mean and the standard deviation. You calculate the mean plus or minus three standard deviation, and those are your limits. So it sounds easy. Six Sigma approach. <laughs> sort of the Six Sigma approach, right? And, and you, you monitor within those limits. Sounds easy, but then what happens is, well, what if you have other sources of variability that impact the results? Like a raw, so raw material may really impact the where the average is for the process. And so you change your batch of raw material and now every, all the process results shift a little bit. So because you have a different supplier or, this or a different, different supplier, or maybe it was just a different lot of the material, just a different production run from the supplier and yeah. it's different and all the results shift. Well, is that part of the normal variation or not? And you have to decide that. And yet, and you may have to quantify that. So you include that in that total normal variation for the process. So you don't end up alarming or having signals that don't really relate to poor quality. Um, uh, so there's, there's those types of issues that come up. You also get involved in a lot of just what I would call investigations. Something goes wrong in the process. It, it produces a bad quality result for a batch of material and you have to understand why. So you end up doing a lot of investigations and sometimes it takes a lot of uh, data mining, taking the historical data that's been produced um, by the product, by the process, and also all of the corresponding input results and measurements that come off of the process itself, like temperatures and pressures and reaction times and which, which operator did this unit operation, which uh, building was it made in, those types of things, or which piece of equipment was it made in, and try to uncover, is there something in there that's explaining the variation in the process output so that maybe you can then identify a root cause for why that one result was bad. So can I imagine, so you have a, one of these batches of products uh, that turns out to be poor quality. Yeah, it has <laughs> some kind of, don't know, uh, the wrong color or, you know, uh, not the wrong, right potency at the end. And then you have this kind of process that has maybe dozens of different steps. Yeah, and each of these steps, you have a couple of different parameters that you're me measuring. Yeah, and also mm -hmm. different parameters. Yeah, sometimes you measure maybe, you know, the fluidity, sometimes you measure the, uh, the temperature of the process, the, the pressure, the, you know, all kinds of different sorts of ingredients. They all come with different, um, different uh, variables as well. So you have this, you know, huge amount of data that led to this one batch. Right. And then you need to compare these, all these numbers to all the other batches that went well, yeah? Right, so you really need to use uh, good multivariate tools and data mining tools uh, to do that well. Um, I, I de I've, in my previous episode that we recorded, you know, I, I explained that part of my experience was is that I worked as a chemist in manufacturing in addition to being a statistician. And so when I was doing that job as a chemist in manufacturing, I had those problems all the time to deal with. You know? and, and I had this historical data sheet of data that I collected off the process, whether it was the quality output, it was what happened during the manufacturing process, what materials got used, which lots, when did, lot, when did the material uh, lot number change, things like that. 
And I would do that data mining on a fairly regular basis. And I was lucky because I knew how to do it because I was a statistician too. Uh, but oftentimes people who don't have that skill or the tools to do it, they will come along and ask a statistician to help them do that with their process data. And then I think with the, the third thing I would say is that I think growing is this idea of providing tools for people to use. So there's a growing need for people to be able to take that process data, for instance, and put it all together automatically and yeah, put so it in a package you, you, that can be analyzed pretty readily. You basically scale the knowledge of yourself. Yeah? So you right. see these kind of topics that come up again and again and again. You know, there's this chemist that every three days is in your door and has the same question. Oh, where's the problem now? <laughs> Yeah. So, so there's a role in this area, in these areas for people who are just really good with data and programming and understand data systems, understand data visualization too, which is a really important thing. So that, and, and, uh, and I, I always, when I was started in that role, we didn't have as much of that. We didn't really have much computer programming support or SAS programming support or whatever tool we were using and we had to do it on our own. And with all of those other problems that I described that we had to address, we really never had time to just focus on developing a new visualization system for everyone to use, unless it was a really, really big problem that needed to be solved. So in the non-clinical area, if anybody's listening there, you know, if you don't have a statistical analyst, you know, someone who's really good at the programming side of things and the data side of things, you should consider hiring one because it will amplify your group's ability to do what you need to do and serve your customers better. I think that is important for any statistician, data scientist out there. If you do something repeatedly, then try to automate it. Yeah, maybe... Maybe you can't completely automate it, but maybe you can semi-automate it. Yeah, so that mm -hmm. at least kind of maybe 80% of the questions can directly be answered with the automated tool and only for these weird cases that, you know, don't follow the, the usual kind of problem structure, then you have, um, you have say, your phone number showing up and say, call here because it didn't right. work well. <laughs> Yeah. Another side of the whole manufacturing part of non-clinical statistics, which is what I know really well, is the, the process development side of it. And I think we're going to talk about that maybe in a subsequent episode, a little bit more detail about it. But that's really about using good design principles to design materials that have good quality. And uh, there's a great book out there by Joran. It's called Quality by Design. Every statistician ought to read that book. It's a great book. And we use those principles, or we try to in, in pharmaceutical development, the quality by design, by design principles, to the extent that quality by design has become a regulatory term and a regulatory expectation that you apply those principles when you do new product design on the chemical manufacturing and control aspect of the, uh, the drug product. Okay, so that was a nice teaser for the next episode with Sam. Right. Uh, Sam. So stay tuned for that one and have a lovely day, evening, night, morning, wherever you are while you're listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. 
this show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com where you will find the show notes and lots of more insightful information to become a better statistician. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.